Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. By the, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preached, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ was not raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. I didn't grow up playing cards. Some of you did, but I didn't. So I know almost nothing about cards. So when somebody tries to introduce a card game to me, I do my best. But you see, there's some basics about cards that you need to know and remember in an instant. Things like, what's the best card to put down? And I'm not sure which one it is, honestly. And I'm kind of slow. So I'm not very good at card games. But one thing I know from watching ESPN poker, you know, you know what I'm talking about, the guys that wear the glasses and try to keep you from seeing the eyes and all that kind of stuff, um, they always keep their cards concealed, right? You don't want to show your hand. You don't want to show the fact that you've got an ace in your hand, so, so you keep it close. I don't know about the Apostle Paul. I don't think they had cards the way we have cards, although there were some kind of 
bedding going on for Jesus' clothes at the bottom of the cross. Maybe they had some form of card-like thing. But if Paul was here, here's my suggestion. He wouldn't be a very good card player. At least not based on the way he writes. Why do I say that? Because he reveals his hand. He really doesn't care. He just puts it out there. He's that kind of person who speaks directly and you don't have to wonder what he's thinking. Sometimes he's confusing, but you don't have to wonder what he's thinking. And on this occasion in 1 Corinthians 15, he just lays it out there. He says, here's all my cards and here's the one I can't do without. It's called the resurrection. If you take that card out of the deck I quit. I got nothing left. I can't play the game. I want to divide his comments in chapter 15 into three parts. There are three things Paul seems to be saying about the resurrection, broadly speaking. The first is it's historical. The second is it's essential. And the third is, the resurrection is future. So first, to the historical. He rolls it out. He tells everybody, look, this wasn't done in a closet. It wasn't done behind closed doors. This resurrection thing is not a hoax. Jesus appeared to Peter, and he could have listed a lot of other names like Mary. And then he appeared to the 12 after he was raised. And then on one occasion, he appeared to 500 people all at one time. Everybody saw him, the risen Christ. Paul seems to be giving us ammunition if we want to do Christian apologetics, the defense of the faith. And that ammunition comes in a variety of ways, but one of them, the big one, is 500 people at the same time. You know, some of the theories that suggest that the resurrection didn't really happen also suggests that people were just hallucinating when they saw Jesus. They wanted to see him so bad that he just showed up in their memory and their vision. That doesn't happen to 500 people all at one time. If you know anything about hallucinations, not happening. Paul basically is saying it's indisputable. You don't have to believe it, but I have good reason to believe the witnesses he showed up. Furthermore, he says, he actually showed up to me as one who was kind of late born, kind of a, a child who almost never made it out of the womb. I, as a matter of fact, am not even worthy to be called a disciple because I persecuted the church of Christ. But they call me an apostle. I listened to what they delivered to me and I'm passing it on to you. It really happened. That's the first thing he says about the resurrection. It happened. I actually never quite noticed this before. But when Paul says he also presented himself to me, I wonder if Paul was saying that, if he would say he came to Peter and to the other disciples and to 500 people and he actually came to me. He showed up for me. 
It was no doubt in a vision where Jesus shows up for him. We think of it as the Damascus Road experience. What Paul is doing in effect is placing a stamp on the legitimacy of a personal experience with Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. He's saying he showed up for me, and by implication, he will show up for you. I continue to hear stories of missionaries all over the world, especially for whatever reason in Muslim countries that are telling stories like this. People come to faith in Christ and they tell us that Jesus showed up to them in a dream. Here's what I want to affirm. Based on Paul's experience and the experience of 2,000 years of people encountering Christ, Jesus is pursuing us. He's pursuing even those that you know and long to see him find. He's pursuing them. He's actually passionate about showing up, and he will. He will show up for everyone. Paul says it's real. It really happened. And it happened for me. Some of you, as you hear that, you remember the time it happened for you. It was overwhelming. I remember it well. July 17th, 1977. Jesus showed up. I was raised in a Christian home. Knew all about the story. But on that day, Jesus showed up. And I could no longer deny his love. I could no longer continue to say no because he showed up. He's real. Second thing that Paul says about the resurrection, not only is it historical, it's essential. You know, I know, Paul says, some of you don't believe in the resurrection of the body. That was widely disputed. Among his culture, because in his culture, the Roman culture, the resurrection of the body was, was it's a joke. The body dies and it stays dead. And besides that, the body is the prison house of the soul. Why would you want a body that rose again? What you want is the spirit. Lots of people believed in eternal life, the afterlife, but not in a body. And Paul's in effect saying this is qualitatively different than anything you've heard in your culture. We are saying that Christ rose, and because he rose, you will rise again if you are in Christ. There were also people among the Jewish audience who didn't believe in the resurrection. The leaders of that group were called the Sadducees. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. 
But the dominant belief among Jewish folks was that the resurrection would happen. And their understanding is that the resurrection would happen in the last day. I had a professor one time who made kind of a coy comment. He said, actually, when the resurrection of Jesus happened, it wasn't like everybody was surprised. They were just surprised that everybody else wasn't raised too. Right? Because they thought that when Jesus came back from the dead, it pronounced the end of time and the resurrection of all those who had died. So there, there were plenty of people who believed in the resurrection. And Paul appeals to those people who believe and those who do not. And he says, believe it. And here's why I want you to believe it. Because if Christ has not been raised, the dead cannot be raised. And if the dead cannot be raised, then Christ has not been raised. They go together. But I'm telling you that Christ was raised. And because Christ was raised, the dead also will be raised. It's inevitable that those who are in Christ experience the power of the resurrection here and now and in the future to come. The second part of it being essential is this. If there's no resurrection, Paul says, your faith is useless. You know what he's saying among other things? He's saying that our Christian faith is different than other faiths. I'm not expecting you to believe in a mystical notion of God that God actually exists. Very good. What I'm asking you to believe in is the Christian faith. And the Christian faith is established on the principle of the resurrection itself. And if the resurrection did not happen, your faith is nonsense. Because your faith is all about the resurrection. You've got to have the resurrection if you're going to have Christian faith. The second, the third part of this idea that the resurrection is critically important is that if the resurrection did not happen, Paul says, we're all liars. All of us. After all, you know, who would lie about such a thing and walk to his or her death? All they had to do is say, okay, it's, it's a joke. I, I just made it up. You're off the hook. But they didn't. Martyr after martyr after martyr walked to their death and was persecuted for this one thing, the resurrection of the dead. Now, I can imagine that some people would be foolish enough to do such a thing, some narcissistic fool that wanted to create a following and wanted to be a hero, but it's not normal. People don't usually lie and know they're lying so that they can die. Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, we're all liars. If the resurrection didn't happen, your faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Let me create an image for you. It's not Paul's image. But with this notion of your resurrection being in, your faith being in vain, if you don't believe in the resurrection, imagine this. Imagine that you're experiencing a horrific flash flood in southern Indiana. And you're right on the floodplain. And that creek is rising so fast that within moments you know you're going to be swept away. 
and you frantically look around you. There's hardly any place to go. And you notice an enormous stately oak tree right next to that roaring creek. And you climb it quickly and you sit on one of its solid branches and you watch the chaos beneath you. Paul, in effect, is saying, if you don't have the resurrection, it's like cutting the limb that you're sitting on. That's how important it is. Your faith is in vain. You're foolish. We are liars. And furthermore, if the resurrection hasn't taken place, you're still in your sins. He might have said to them, you understand this, right? That's the reason you received my gospel. You knew you had a need. You knew you were in your sins. You needed rescue. And if the resurrection hasn't taken place, then you're still in your sins. You're right back where you were. All this is just a bunch of fluff. It's just a bunch of poetry. Deliverance from sin is contingent upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ because he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that happened because of the resurrection, says Paul. Finally, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then the dead are dead forever. You know, we know people don't come back, right? That's the sad reality of a final passing. They're gone. You can't speak to them. You can't see them. And Paul says, if it wasn't for the resurrection, they'd be gone forever. Forever and ever. But because of the resurrection, not only will you see them again, but eventually you're going to see them in a glorified body. If for this life only, he says, we believe in Christ or hope in Christ, we're just pitiful people. We're living countercultural lives. We're suffering persecution. We're dying for our faith. We're like lambs led to a slaughter. He describes this in a variety of other places. If it wasn't for the resurrection, we're just pitiful. I don't mean to make it sound really tough, but folks, why would you do this if it wasn't true? Why not just spend all your time on material things? Why not just say the best thing in the world is to be as rich as possible so I can have everything for myself? Why not? Paul seems to be indicating that there's nothing, nothing, that gives life except the resurrection. And if you lose the resurrection, you're just pitiful for not seeking life other places. So the third thing that Paul seems to be saying, first of all, that the resurrection is historical, second, that it's essential, and third, that it is in the future. This is, uh, quite frankly, a bit confusing to a variety of Christians because we've uh, used our rhetoric about the resurrection of the body in ways that Paul is not using it here. 
To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, says Paul later in, to the Thessalonians. Paul didn't say to be absent from the body is to be present in a glorified body. It's not what he said. He said the glorified body will come to us on the last day. But when we're absent from this body, we are present with the Lord. What kind of body then? They asked Paul, or seemed to be asking him, because he gives the question and the answer. What kind of body will this glorified body be? Paul's a little coy, because I don't think he really understands or knows exactly what the glorified body would be. He uses an image of a seed, a seed that just grows into something that is amazing, well beyond the seed itself. But all analogies, even in Scripture, fall short. So Paul says that this body, this new glorified body, it will be incorruptible. It just won't wear out. It just will be a body that is full of the glory of God. I was reading N.T. Wright this week, and he used this analogy. I thought it was an interesting one. He said, imagine that you are somewhere 100 years from now, and you're in a very large showroom, and you're looking around, and the salesperson is pointing out vehicles. And he said, for the most part, they look the same. It's like, yeah, they're beautiful new cars. And then he says, but there's something really different about this vehicle. First, it doesn't run on an oil-based product. Uh, Second, it just doesn't need any fuel. It, It just runs. And third... It runs forever. And I'll add something as a car aficionado. You'll never get rust on it. And the dents will magically disappear. And nothing can harm it. Wright says, maybe that's an analogy. It kind of looks like the thing we used to drive. But now it's, it's perfect and indestructible destructible, and and, in some fashion, glorious. Paul says your body is going to be, resurrect your body absolutely at least like that, incorruptible. The resurrected body will be also honorable. I love this one. Why does he use honorable? Because we know that we don't always honor the image of God in our bodies or in our minds. We are frequently far from honoring the image of God. And in our resurrected bodies, Paul says, they'll be honorable. They will be what they were made to be not weighed down by sin. Of all the things, I guess, maybe I'm not supposed to choose, that one excites me the most. 
What else about the resurrected body? It will be a body of strength. You know, I've learned in physiology and body science a little bit about the body and how it ages. And uh, now it's more than speculation. I'm experiencing it. And (laughs) somewhere in your early to mid-20s, you have a peak of speed as a runner. You know, maybe right after college. Now, it's not impossible to get a little faster past 25, but generally speaking, that's because of technique. Your peak physical speed is right in there. Your peak physical strength is not so much different. It's a little bit later in your maybe later 20s. And, of course, all this is kind of a moving target. But the difference between the speed element in terms of your peak in your youth is that the strength element can sustain itself for 10 to 15 years. So you can be at really high level of physical strength, maybe into your 40s. So when I looked at that, I was thinking to myself, so why in the world did I start running at 45. That was really dumb, right? If I'd started running in my 20s, I would have been a lot happier guy. Now, of course, in your 40s, um, here's what happens. And when you're 60 like me, it's like you can't even remember how it used to be. I mean, the decline is so dramatic. Paul is, in effect, saying, you'll be back, but better than ever. (laughs) Your resurrected body is going to be not downhill. It's going to be perfect. There's one other thing he says about it. He says, all this is because it's a spiritual body. And he doesn't mean like a ghost or something. He just means that that body now will be absolutely at one with Christ. And in so being, will be a thoroughly complete spiritual body. One whose impulses are always the heartbeat of God. Wow. Won't that be great? So what's the summary of all this from Paul's description? Just a few things. The resurrection is more than just a miracle. I mean, sometimes in evangelical circles, and I've done it for 30 years, you figure out arguments to defend the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's good reason for that. But if we spend a lot of time on that, it's possible we'll miss something else. It wasn't just a historical event. It wasn't just a miracle. It was a restoration of the way things ought to be. It was a recreation. It was God speaking through Jesus Christ and saying, death is not going to hold the way it's holding now. I'm turning it back. Everything will be new. Yeah, that's a miracle. But it's more than a one-time event. 
Because the miracle of the resurrection is that you, as a person, will experience the same resurrection that Jesus did if you are in Christ. Now that's good news. That's way beyond just one-time miracle in Galilee. It's transformative for everyone who follows Christ. The second thing that Paul seems to be saying, and especially in other places, is that the resurrection is literally an infusion of life into the individual who is in Christ. You become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Your impulses towards following Christ increase. You may have wished to have been a good person in the past, but now because of grace, you understand what it means to follow Christ out of love. Okay, I get it. I'm, I'm a reasonable guy. There were days last week that it didn't seem like I was infused with the power of the resurrection because that was all about me. And that's not the resurrection power that Paul's talking about. But I know, I know that even in the most difficult days, I will have this infusion of life and my heart will be drawn back to God. It never stops because the resurrection life of Christ is within me. And because it is, I don't just think about God. I have a relationship with God. Because it is, I've been given the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it is, I call God Abba Father. It's the power of the resurrection for those who believe. So finally, It's not really a corrective, but it's sort of one. Having said all that, I I must say this. The resurrection is more than you personally. Oh, it's great that it's you personally. I'm very happy for that. It's the core of my being. But the resurrection is way bigger than that. Not just a miracle. It's not just about you and your Jesus. It's about the world. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ is going to transform all of reality. Every square inch of the universe is transformed in the last day by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Or as Paul later puts it, or not later, but at the end of the book of Romans, which we've already covered in chapter 8, he said the creation right now is groaning in anticipation of its liberation from the bondage of decay. It, like us, is feeling the effects and the weight of sin, and it's going to be liberated, just like we're going to be liberated. And that creation is going to be restored to its perfect, pristine order, to the way it was made to be. That's a grand story. We're just a microcosm of that story. A beloved microcosm, but a microcosm. God is going to restore all things. And we get to be a part of it. 
The resurrection will restore the beauty of the earth. It will restore the beauty of the body. It will restore the beauty of relationships that are broken. And it will be beautiful because it will impart to us a singular, undivided heart and a love for God. That makes me want to say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. I'm ready. Let's pray. Lord, for the truth of the resurrection, we thank you. For the transformative power of the resurrection, we thank you. And for the future hope of the resurrection, we thank you. Make us the kind of people who live in the light of that grace, walk with you closely, and anticipate the reality that the final product is yet to come. Thank you. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.